Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Famie Redwood. This week, we're exploring the 1991 Crown Heights riot where violence broke out between Black and Lubavitch Hasidic communities. Yes, this story has been told several times before, but this time it's through an intersectional lens. A quick recap if you're not familiar. On August 19th, 1991, a 7-year-old black child named Gavin Cato was playing on a street corner in Crown Heights, Brooklyn with his cousin. Crown Heights is a predominantly black neighborhood, largely Caribbean, but there's also a large Lubavitch community. But as the children played on the sidewalk, the driver of a station wagon lost control and jumped the curb. The kids were pinned under the car. The car was part of a motorcade for the neighborhood's Hasidic spiritual leader. A privately run ambulance that mostly served the Hasidic community arrived. But some witnesses say it only helped the Jewish driver of the car, not the black children who were pinned underneath it. Gavin died, his cousin seriously injured, and animosity between the two groups, which had already been growing, deepened. Neighbors were pitted against neighbors. Unrest began and continued for days. The violence started at dusk. Dozens of demonstrators vented their anger with bottles and rocks that kept police and residents running and ducking. There's a lot more to this story, but this week we're going to do something a little different. A new podcast called Love Thy Neighbor just dropped. It doesn't just explore the riots, but rather the issues that led up to it. Its host, Collier Meyerson, who is both black and Jewish, digs into what came next. We're going to talk to the host later, but for now, I want to play part of episode two. Also, there is antiquated language in this episode as it leans on historical archives. Full disclosure, this podcast is owned by our parent company, Odyssey, but that's not why I'm sharing it. I'm sharing it because despite my existing vast knowledge of the story, I walked away learning something new, and I think you will too. In the early 50s, the neighborhood was 89% white. And then, by the end of the decade, that started to change. Fast. White flight was transforming cities and suburbs across the country. Redlining and predatory real estate tactics initiated by powerful white politicians and homeowners made it so that Black folks weren't able to move to the suburbs. And in the end, it boiled down to one simple American equation. Crown Heights in Brooklyn is a changing urban neighborhood. Blacks moved in, whites moved out. And they moved with urgency. By 1970, Crown Heights was 70% black. But Crown Heights was different from other rapidly changing cities like Detroit or Philadelphia, or even other neighborhoods in New York City, because of one key exception. But in Crown Heights, another group of whites moved in and has stayed. They are the Lubavitcher Hasidim, a sect of devoutly religious Jews which originated in Russia. And it was really just the Lubavitch Hasidic community 
that made a very conscious decision to stay in the neighborhood. Anthropologist Henry Goldschmidt again. This was, you know, in response to a call from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who made a big speech saying, you know, we're staying. This is our neighborhood. This is where we've put down roots after the Holocaust. We're not leaving. It wasn't just that he worried about uprooting his community. He actively didn't want to abandon other vulnerable people in Crown Heights. And he made a point of telling his community not to fear their neighbors. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was the leader of the community who lived on Eastern Parkway, was very much against any type of panicking and running. Here's Simon Jacobson again, describing his own family's decision to remain in Crown Heights. So though so many whites, including uh, Jewish whites, ran, he said, no, we are here. We're not going anywhere. We're here. There was no attitude. My parents never considered, oh, let's look for a home in the Long Island or some suburb. So by the end of the 1960s, you've got these two immigrant communities, Jews who fled to America after the Holocaust and Black Caribbeans who came here looking for a better life. And now they're living side by side in this one neighborhood in Brooklyn. When I was growing up, stories of Black and Jewish alliances, the sense of a kind of shared path, this was all drummed into my head. The most important idea in Judaism, I was told, was tikkun olam, Hebrew for repairing the world. I was taught about Martin Luther King speaking out on behalf of oppressed Soviet Jews and about Rabbi Abraham Heschel marching alongside Dr. King. On Passover, every year, my family, like Jews around the world, retells the story of our own escape from enslavement in the land of Egypt. We believed in the possibility of interracial alliance. My parents' own marriage looked from the outside like a romantic embodiment of all the civil rights ideals I and secular Jews in my world were raised to believe in. As Abraham Heschel put it, Seen in the light of our religious tradition, the Negro problem is God's gift to America, the test of our integrity, a magnificent spiritual opportunity. But that wasn't really how it played out in 1960s Crown Heights. This is the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York City. This is a crime-menaced neighborhood. There's this short-lived news program from the mid-60s called Survival. It's narrated by James Whitmore, an actor from the golden age of Hollywood. He's speaking over a shot of a young woman standing outside of a subway station at night, lit only by a pair of street lamps. And for the moment, this girl waits frightened and alone. But there is something Crown Heights residents can do to allay their fears. The report is about a group called the Maccabees, named for biblical Jewish heroes. These Maccabees are a new self-appointed community patrol group formed by the Lubavitchers in Crown Heights in 1964. She has summoned a citizen safety patrol group, a specially assigned escort, to see her safely home. I know my friends and I feel much safer when we walk the streets at night. We know that if we do come home at a halfway unreasonable hour, we can always call on them to walk us into the building and upstairs. Oh, I feel it's a wonderful thing. As white people fled Crown Heights, tax dollars and public resources went with them. Crime went up like it did in cities all over America. And that's when the Maccabees came on the scene. Charlotte Lipsick, schoolteacher, met at death, returning from an evening at the movie. Charlotte Lipsick, alone in the streets of Crown Heights at night, could have called on the Maccabee patrols to see her home. She did not. And she is dead. Charlotte Lipsick was a beloved teacher in the Lubavitch community. 
Her violent rape and murder stunned the entire neighborhood and perpetuated existing fears of anti-Semitism. The suspect in the murder was a black teenage boy. A police composite from the Daily News could not possibly look more generic. Shaved head, full lips, a slight grimace. It's hard to watch this report and not hear the message loud and clear. When they say they're afraid of crime, they're saying they're afraid of their black neighbors. What are people to do when their wives and children are afraid to walk the streets because of muggers and rapists? Rabbi Samuel Schrago was a founder of the Crown Heights Maccabees. What are people to do when the sanctity of their own homes are being violated by thieves who break in the still of the night? Are they just to wait and wait? I say no. I say they must act in their own interest. The special goes on like this for another 15 minutes or so, the music swelling the whole way through. It describes how the Maccabees acquired more volunteers, not all of them Lubavitchers, including a few black residents who were also concerned about crime in the neighborhood. The group also got more patrol cars and walkie-talkies, and they start to coordinate more closely with the NYPD. Here's Rabbi Schrega talking with a captain from the 71st Precinct. We feel like a part of the police department, really, you know? <laughs> and maybe we ought to talk about uniforms. <laughs> the Maccabee video does include a detractor as well, though. Around 13 minutes in, a middle-aged black woman raises a note of caution. We aren't told her name or her profession or anything about her, but what she said, it stuck with me because it was more prescient than anyone could have known at the time. There are people that know more about this than I do. If they think the answer maybe it'll work. But uh, I don't see how you can just grab a lot of people and say you're going to patrol areas, because after a while, it'll get to the place where the white people will say, well, you can't come into my neighborhood, and the Negroes will say, well, you can't come to my neighborhood, so you're going to still have race riots. It's still going to breed more trouble, more discontent. When we return, I'll play a few more minutes of Love Thy Neighbor and then chat with Collier. If you enjoy learning about Chicago culture and history, WBBM's newest podcast, Shades of the City, is for you. Join me as I go into the community to hear about the history of the Pullman Company that created opportunities for African Americans in the late 1860s. One of the major contributors to the development of Bronzeville, as an example, was the uh, role of the Pullman Partners. Subscribe now to Shades of the City on the Odyssey app and Apple Podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. I want to play one more portion of Love Thy Neighbor. That's why I'm here today, is to talk to the rabbis and to yourself, thinking we're going to take additional steps to provide uh, security and uh, Peace for the community, the Crown Heights community. This is New York Mayor John Lindsay. It's November 1968, and he's come out to 770 to meet with Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson. It is a test case. Yeah. It's not only for New York, but it will be a test case for for United States, for many cities, and maybe in the world uh, in general. That's true. We have a special opportunity to be an example to the world, the Rebbe is saying. Unrest is spreading in the world around us. Anti-Semitic crimes, vandalism, a firebombing, truly violent hate crimes occurred with relative frequency in Brooklyn. And like a lot of local religious leaders, the Rebbe was putting voice to those concerns on behalf of his community. 
Politicians understood that meeting with the Rebbe was a good way to get the Lubavitch community to pay attention to what they had to say. I agree with me that if you are doing something for our community, that you are doing at the same time a good service for all New York. This is less than a year later. The Rebbe's meeting with the president of the city council to talk more about crime in Crown Heights. On this particular weekend, I stated that we were catering, unfortunately, to an illegal minority who were violating all of the rights, civil, criminal, religious, and of the majority. Both the Rebbe and the city council president agree that what's needed are stricter judges and a clear no-tolerance message from City Hall. Lubavitchers are extremely proud of the Rebbe's views on crime prevention and harsh prison sentencing. He spoke many times about the need for education in prison as a restorative measure and not as a punitive one, an ideal that could never really match the reality of our current justice system. The Rebbe's influence extended beyond policing in the community, though. The organizing power of Lubavitchers meant that they'd get all sorts of political spoils, things like street closures on holidays, and they would benefit from discretionary funds for neighborhood renovations. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. I think it's important to remember that in this period of New York City and other American cities, we're all like starved for resources and in a certain sense, like fighting over scraps. The flip side of the Rebbe's municipal success is that mostly none of it extends to their Caribbean neighbors. All of those little benefits from the city go only to the Lubavitchers. It was more of us over here than than them, but they had more power because like, we never could have a block party. Deanna McIntyre grew up in Crown Heights. Her parents came from Jamaica. She lived on a block mixed with both Lubavitch and Caribbean Americans. And Brooklyn, and New York City in general, is famous for its block parties. But in order to have one, officially, you need your neighbor's approval to close down the street. We have the biggest, widest block. We never got a block party because they would never sign a petition or they never wanted. It. it wasn't just that they couldn't get petitions signed. It was other things, too. Seemingly small things. But it all started to add up. Deanna says that if they're being too loud, their Jewish neighbors would make a call and shut them down. So, like, certain things we would do is, like, we just put the music on, you know, somebody's porch, like, and they would let it go. But then, of course, out of the tide of the music, certain time, you, they, special police come and just shut it down. Because I don't know how they just come on the spot. So, that's um, me. When you say special police, We like, call them the special police because they come quick <laughs> for them. Like, we say they have a different number from us because... <laughs> You know, they're here in the blink of an eye. They want you to move your car from their driveway. They, and if we want someone to move a car, like, we got we got to wait. But theirs is on the spot. So I believe there's a special police station just for them a number or something. But when it's their time to pray or have those things outside and they move, it's no problem. It can go on to whatever time, you understand? But if we would like to have the same kind of celebration, even trying to get permission from them when they don't need permission from us. So it's like, those are the things that's not fair. To be clear, there is no special phone number for the Hasidim. Some might even take offense at that suggestion. 
But the idea of that number, it comes from a feeling that different rules apply to Caribbean Americans than to Lubavitchers. In the mid-70s, a new political fight sprang up in Crown Heights. It was over the topic of district zoning. Basically, the Lubavitchers, who shared a district with the Caribbean Americans, wanted to divide it into two separate districts. Specifically, they appealed to this group within the city government called the Board of Estimate. The BOE consisted of basically every top elected official, and it had all kinds of power, like approving the city's budgets and determining district maps. Lubavitchers were successful in their appeal, and in 1976, the Board of Estimate drew a line across Eastern Parkway, splitting one district into two. It seemed to favor the Lubavitch community even more. This is sensitive territory. The idea that Jews have access to secret levers of power is one of the oldest and most persistent anti-Semitic canards in history. But at the same time, a lot of Caribbean Americans in the neighborhood felt like their Lubavitch neighbors were gaining political benefits at their expense. A leading Black pastor in Crown Heights at the time called it a sad day for America. We've seen raw racism here, he said. The district as it stood already received a limited amount of the city's resources. But splitting it up meant that the Caribbean community would now get an even smaller slice of the pie. If you are the district leader, you know, they gave, they gave out jobs. They controlled where money flowed in terms of state grants. Mark Winston Griffith is the executive director of a local activist organization in Crown Heights called the Brooklyn Movement Center. He's a community organizer and journalist who's worked in Crown Heights nearly all his life. They determined what nonprofit organizations existed. They determined how housing resources, education resources, and other kind of local resources were distributed. They determined, you know, what your relationship was with the local police department, with the local education system. So these were all important things. On one level, it looked like the same old racist policies. A white community getting preferential treatment at the expense of their Black neighbors. But the reality in Crown Heights was a little more complicated than that because of the particular histories of these two groups. The Caribbean Americans living there don't entirely identify with other Black Americans. Their relation to whiteness, for one thing, isn't exactly the same. It's not to say that racism didn't exist in the Caribbean, because it absolutely does exist, and it did happen. Here's Professor of African and African American Studies, Taisha Maddox, again. But it's a difference when you come from a society that's majority Black, where you are in the majority. Even if you don't have most of the power, you're still just in the majority. So you would not be, it wouldn't be weird for you to see Black people who are lawyers or doctors or holding high positions. Whereas when they come to the United States, they are definitely in the minority. And I think they are shocked how systematic the racism is and how structural the racism is, as opposed to in the Caribbean. And I think that's a major difference. It was not a racial category or an ethnic category. It was a religious category. Miriam Levy-Heim is in her 30s. She grew up in the Lubavitch community in Crown Heights. Her family are Iranian Jews. So I think the idea that Jews are white would not have made sense as a kid. Like, we didn't do the things that white people do in America. Like, 
We eat like casseroles. I don't even know what a casserole is. You know, I've never had a casserole. The funny thing about Crown Heights is it's not just the Afro-Caribbeans who get caught up in a binary that doesn't reflect their sense of self. Many Labavagers don't think of themselves as white either. America has been a place of promise for my family. You know, we escaped persecution and oppression and came here uh, where we can live openly as Jews, um, thrive with the protection of the state, which is like kind of crazy when you consider that from, you know, the very long lens of Jewish history. And that protection of the state is crucial for Jews in America. But for visibly religious Jews like the Lubavitchers, everyday anti-Semitism is a bigger, often unavoidable part of daily life. For Lubavitchers, almost every aspect of life is defined by Judaism. The way they dress, the foods they eat, the rituals they keep, the patterns of their week. It's a highly particular existence. You know, it's not just that blacks and Jews in the neighborhood are different. Anthropologist Henry Goldschmidt again. It's that they have different understandings of their difference. They don't agree on how they're different. In my own household growing up, there were times when this idea, this misunderstanding of their difference, created real tension between my parents. My dad, a lawyer often fighting against racism, didn't understand what it felt like to experience it. He's Jewish, and he's often talked about how his Jewishness informs his work, the history of marginalization, of being cast out, and the Jewish mandate of tikkun olam, to repair the world. But still, he's viewed by the world as white. I remember another incident where I was so upset with your dad. My mom's talking about the time she went to look in an apartment around when I was born. When she got there, though, and they saw that she was black, they told her the apartment was no longer available. It was one of those times when I just, I just could not talk because I was so furious. And I knew this. I knew it in my bones that this was discrimination. So, of course, what do I do? I come home to my civil rights lawyer, husband, and I say to him, this is what happened to me today, and I am furious about it. I know what this is, and I want you to do something about it. And he referred me to a friend. Well, wait, wait, wait. Now, I will give you that explanation for that. You always have some kind of... When I told you to call Dick Bellman, Dick Bellman was the civil rights lawyer in New York City with an expertise in housing discrimination par excellence. I could sense my mom's anger at him stemmed more from his inability to truly understand her embarrassment and sadness, to understand her experience. Instead, he just jumped straight into recommending a friend of his, an admittedly excellent lawyer, to help her case. There are always going to be moments that he doesn't understand, that he can't quite understand, because of his whiteness. And parsing that out is complicated.
There's this essay that James Baldwin wrote for the New York Times Magazine in 1967. It has this provocative title, Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. And in it, Baldwin tries to explain why it is that Black people have come to resent Jews, who until only recently had been thought of as a great ally of Black people. He's writing about his neighborhood of Harlem. He starts off writing about how many of the local proprietors, landlords, butchers, grocers, were Jewish. Not all of these white men were cruel. On the contrary, I remember some who were certainly as thoughtful as the bleak circumstances allowed, but all of them were exploiting us, and that was why we hated them. But to Baldwin, it wasn't just about everyday disputes. It was the larger sense that in America, Jewish suffering was recognized, while Black suffering was not. The Jew can be proud of his suffering, or at least not ashamed of it. His history and his suffering do not begin in America, where black men have been taught to be ashamed of everything, especially their suffering. It's not Judaism that Baldwin sees as the problem. It's the Jewish people's proximity to whiteness. In the American context, the most ironical thing about Negro anti-Semitism is that the Negro is really condemning the Jew for having become an American white man. Baldwin goes on. They arrived here out of the same effort the American Negro is making. They wanted to live, and not tomorrow, but today. Now, since the Jew is living here, like all the other white men living here, he wants the Negro to wait. And the Jew sometimes, often, does this in the name of his Jewishness, which is a terrible mistake. He has absolutely no relevance in this context as a Jew. His only relevance is that he is white and values his color and uses it. He is singled out by Negroes not because he acts differently from other white men, but because he doesn't. He is playing in Harlem the role assigned him by Christians long ago. He is doing their dirty work. When I first read that last line, it stopped me dead in my tracks. What Baldwin was saying was that Jews weren't exactly white when they first arrived in America, but that they became white over time. And they did so in the most American way there is, by engaging in the anti-Black racism that many see as foundational to this country. Agree with him or not, and honestly, I'm not sure whether I do. What Baldwin is describing here is a point of view that would shape the relationship between Black and Jewish communities for decades to come. That was part of episode two. We spoke with Collier to get more understanding of why she felt this passionate drive to tackle this issue that even three decades later, a lot of people still find it really uncomfortable to talk about. She says she got the idea of this podcast after talking with a friend who didn't know much about the riots. I wanted to dissect the anatomy of a riot, not to mention the political implications of the Crown Heights riot, which I think led to the rise of Rudolph Giuliani as mayor of New York City. And then there's the other side of it, which has been that there's like been a spate of attacks on the Lubavitch community. And then, of course, the death of George Floyd, I think, reinvigorated a movement that takes a, a really deep look into police brutality and killings of Black Americans. So I felt like looking into the history of those two communities would really give us answers that could help us to figure out why these things 
keep on repeating themselves. She says she doesn't want to be this sort of arbiter of truth, but add context while also showing the connection between those events and the failed re-election of David Dinkins and the election of Rudy Giuliani. Mayor Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York City, was portrayed, painted as having let black people run wild in the streets, essentially. And he really lost pretty much all of the support he had had in the Lubavitch community and even outside of that Jewish community extended beyond to other Jewish communities in New York City was almost painted actually as an anti-Semite, which is ironic because he was actually a real champion of Jewish causes. She realizes at the end of this series that Crown Heights communities experienced this sort of pressure to be this shining example of what happens when two very different groups live next to each other. Some of the things that they have done in order to not, you know, love each other, but to live next to each other have been quite impressive to me from being able to sit on community boards together. It goes as far as members of the Hasidic community during summer of 2020, having a Black Lives Matter rally inside of the Hasidic sort of stronghold center of the community. I think that that's really powerful. I think they have sort of said, we're not going to you know, try to be best friends, but we will be better neighbors to one another. And sometimes it doesn't work out and sometimes it does. You can stream Love Thy Neighbor on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you're enjoying our Beyond Black History Month series, which has officially gone beyond Black History Month, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button. Beyond Black History Month is a production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to our producers, Rabia Gersoy and Andy Egan Thorpe. The WCBS News Radio 880 brand manager is Tem Scheld. Ben Meverack is the 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm Femi Redwood. Thanks for listening. Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.